Welcome to the Business of Discovery, a clinical research podcast from the NIHR Clinical Research Network. My name is Alan Gore, and it's a pleasure to have you with us. I'm joined today by Nalan Thacker. Professor Thacker is Associate Vice President and Professor of Molecular Pathology at the University of Manchester, as well as being Consultant Histopathologist at the Central Manchester University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. Professor Thacker sits in the Health Research Authority, Human Tissue Authority Liaison Group and has played an important role in developing HRA policy, position and guidance for use of human tissue in research and for genetic research. He is also a non-executive director of the HRA. Professor Thacker, thank you for speaking to us today. Much has been written about the ethics of clinical research, but, but one of the important things that comes through all this discussion for me is the fact that our approach to ethics is constantly evolving. New ideas, new developments, new technologies all force us to reassess our approach to this important topic. And it is one aspect of that evolution that I would like to discuss with you today, the ethics of clinical research involving genetics and genomics. May I begin by asking you to clarify some of the terminology for those of us unfamiliar with this field. What exactly is the difference between genetics and genomics? There is a tendency for the two to be confused and used interchangeably, even by researchers. I suppose the term genetic research as a generic term is fine if used to refer to all areas of research in the field of genetics, but they do mean different things in context of analysis. Genetic analysis should really just refer to analysis of individual genes or group or set of genes. In contrast, genomic analysis should be used when analysis is of all our genetic material, in other words, our genome. And presumably the idea of genomic analysis is becoming much more possible now with advancing technology. And, and, and because it's cheaper. Mm -hmm. Research involving the use of human tissues and, and the analysis of DNA, either for genetic or genomic studies, is understandably highly regulated. Can you tell me just how tightly this is regulated in the UK? So since 1st of September 2006, the use of tissues and DNA in this country is regulated by the Human Tissue Act 2004. So even though the Act says 2004, it actually was enacted in 2006. I should immediately clarify that most of the provisions of the Act only apply to England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Scotland has its own Human Tissue Act. However, the part of the regulation relating to requirement for consent for DNA analysis applies to all four home nations. The key aspects of regulation are requirement of consent for removal, use and storage of human tissues, requirement of consent for DNA analysis, and in England, Wales and Northern Ireland, requirement of a human tissue authority license to store human tissue under specific circumstances, although this doesn't include DNA. What would you say to those who argue that the regulatory framework in this country and, and perhaps our whole attitude to this field is maybe a, a little patronising, um, perhaps overprotective, that some people would say that if the public were given the information, they would overwhelmingly support the use of their tissues in research and their DNA to be analysed for the benefits of medical research. How would okay. you approach <laughs> so that? I agree with the second part of mm -hmm. that, but not with the first part. Mm -hmm. I think we have to bear in mind how the legislation came about. 
So prior to 2006, there were myriad different pieces of legislation that oversaw removal, use and storage of tissues in different areas of research, such as tissue transplantation, anatomy, and so on. And about 20 years ago, we had the um, organ and tissue retention issues that arose uh, at various hospitals in, in, in UK that came to light and caused considerable distress to the families of individuals whose organs or tissues had been removed without consent. So the Human Tissue Act was introduced in reaction to this and other concerns about, at that time, about unlawful DNA testing. So its objectives were fairly simple. Um, it wanted to make consent a fundamental requirement for removal, use and storage of tissues and therefore prevent distress that we've just talked about. But equally important were the twin objectives of providing firstly the public with more confidence in the system so that they would be more willing to donate tissues for transplantation research and so on. And secondly for the professionals with more confidence in the system so that they would know that the tissues they were using were properly sourced and consented for. It's really it about respect, isn't it? Again, it, comes it, it often is. comes back to that in ethics, isn't it? Respecting it, the public. It, it is. Um, inevitably, this has necessitated some bureaucracy, especially in relation to li licensing, which doesn't apply to Scotland. However, even if you look at that bit, that the requirement is really about the storing the tissues well so that they are in optimal conditions for the purposes they are required for and are, being tra uh, and are traceable from donor to the disposal. So I think even there it's driven up standards for the tissues we hold and they are available in better condition for research. One aspect of this sort of research often involves the collection of large repositories of DNA samples or, or so-called biobanks. Could I ask you to say a little bit about the ethical issues raised by these, if any? So biobanks store all types of tissues, not just DNA. Um, they're always uh, obtained with consent and usually with a generic consent which permits samples to be used for a variety of research studies, including those that might not have been anticipated at this time of sample donation. Because I imagine that's one of the problems that, you know, you're collecting a sample but you might not know what you're going to use, exactly. how you're going to use that sample in the years or decades ahead. Exactly, and that is one of the key ethical issues in biobanking, which uh, concerns many people, which is you are obtaining a generic consent, so which is that you give sample for any known research, but also you give sample for any future research. Um, now, some would argue that this is not truly informed consent as the potential future use of samples is not known and therefore cannot be declared to the donors. My personal view is that we need to evolve the idea of consent. We have now better regulation, research culture and governance in place compared to the past. I think generic consent is acceptable and in my view can be more informative. If I'm happy to give you my tissues for research in full knowledge that you cannot give any assurance to me about its future use, then w in what aspects is it uninformed? I know that you can't give me assurance about its future use or give me some idea of what it might be used for and it, nevertheless I'm happy to sort of give you the tissues. 
And I think there are a number of studies showing that patients, uh, uh, tissue donors, are actually quite happy to do that. When I've been collecting tissues in the past, I've built an additional measure of reassurance. So I always say I will use tissues for research that is only be that I would only use tissues for research that has been approved by a recognized ethics committee, which means that there is some sort of uh, oversight of my activity, as it were, <laughs> my use of those tissues. So it's not just me selecting to do whatever I want to do with it, but there is an oversight of And in a way, someone down the line may be acting as the advocate of the person who has donated yes. the tissue. Do other countries approach it in the same way as we do in the UK? Are there many differences across the world when it comes to biobanking? Um, there are differences, and clearly you can always learn from different sources. But overall, I think, in my opinion, we're probably ahead of the field. Um, unlike many countries, we actually have a law that <laughs> governs <laughs> use of tissues. And I think, importantly, we have a highly developed and unified research ethics systems across the country that regulates this activity. Uh, and other developments like we've seen recently the founding of the UK CRC Human Tissue Directory funded by the MRC, which will permit wider sharing of tissues and improve accessibility of tissues for researchers. So we're making better use of the tissues we collect. Importantly, the HRA has recognised this as an important development and in fact we were pushing for this to be developed um, because um, I think we need to encourage people to sort of make better use of tissues we already hold. So uh, in recognition of this, uh, registration of tissue banks with the directory will become a, or has become a mandatory requirement of ethics approval. So I think we're doing a lot of things that other countries are aspiring to follow. It certainly makes sense to make the best use of the data we have and of the tissue we have. Exactly. I suppose that brings me to my, my next question, that when we analyse tissue, when we analyse DNA, we, we are yielding a, a great deal of personal, <laughs> often sensitive information about mm -hmm. an individual. Um, as such, sh do you think we should be viewing tissue as data? Um, should it be governed okay. in the same way as we govern sensitive personal data through, for example, the Data Protection Act? Okay. I think people are concerned because our genomes are very individual or unique to us. And it may be possible to identify individuals from their genomic sequence, for example. I think we share, to identify anyone from the information we normally share on databases, research databases, which has not got public access. This is reserved for researchers. It would take really a concerted and probably an illegal effort <laughs> to identify individuals. So I'm not too worried about the information being shared uh, amongst researchers. I think in future, d depending on how things develop, yes, we may need to think about how we protect individuals. But at this stage, I think it would take a lot of effort to actually identify an individual from their DNA sequence. You would need a lot of other information. And most of the information we share is anonymized. So I think it'd be quite difficult unless you were in the know. <laughs>
separate from, say, identifying a person as an individual, what about potentially incidental medical findings that you might throw sure. up as an, a result okay. of analysing their genome? Okay. Uh, do they pose particular ethical issues, do you think? Yes, certainly. So, until recently, when we were doing genetic analysis, we would only be looking at a single gene or small group of genes. And the chances of having an incidental finding in that circumstance is fairly low because we are looking in a small area of our genetic material. Once you start looking for a genetic change by sequencing the whole of the genetic material, you're generating a huge amount of additional information which might reveal changes that predispose us to other conditions. Now, the chances of finding that is fairly low, but it's not nothing. <laughs> so you could find it. Um, I can't give you the figures at the top of my head, but certainly there, there is certainly a chance of you detecting uh, conditions that may be serious and untreatable, serious or untreatable, and then there'll be minor sort of predispositions to other things. So the question arises, how do you handle that incidental information? And there is no simple answer because you don't know what you're going to find. And therefore, what we suggest to researchers is to anticipate what sort of things could be found. Have a means of working out what they would be willing to communicate with the uh, individuals should they find that information and share that at with when seeking consent so people can participate knowing fully so you might choose a researcher might choose and say i will only communicate the pertinent finding of the study to you i will not look for anything else and even if i find something else i will not do anything about it now at that point a, part, a research part, potential research participant might say no that i don't want to participate under those conditions equally well if a researcher turned around and said I would communicate everything back to you a research participant might say well I don't really want to know about conditions that are serious life-threatening and are untreatable so it would depend on each study and on uh, what the researchers are proposing to do you have to balance that with the cost pot potentially of returning the incidental findings as well now, if we insist on every case of researchers having to return incidental findings, I think the cost of the studies might be so high that it may never happen. And then you have to balance up what's the harm of not doing that study. So it's, it is a very complex argument, uh, discussion to be had at that point. And researchers should be free to decide how within the confines of their expertise, their funding and so on, how they're going to be uh, handling that sort of information and for the ethics committee to see if, if, if that is sensible way to proceed under those circumstances. They may not apply to another study, those same circumstances. I began by saying, you know, how our approach to these things change over time and how new developments force us to reevaluate the ethics, and I think that's a perfect example Absolutely. of what you just said. Professor Thacker, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us today. My pleasure. You've been listening to The Business of Discovery. 
a podcast from the NIHR Clinical Research Network. I hope you'll join us again next time.